Well, hello and welcome. My name is Nicholas. I'm one of the pastors here at Fountain Springs. Let me just pause to say uh, welcome to those joining us at East. Uh, if you're joining us online or on television, we're just so glad that you're with us uh, today. I have the privilege of sharing the second week of a series, as Karina mentioned, called Women of the Bible. And uh, I want to start by just kind of reiterating the importance of a series like this. And I guess I'll, I'll start by saying that Maybe like this, uh, you, you may be surprised by this, but Christians don't always agree on everything. I don't know if you know that, but sometimes Christians have beliefs that differ from one another, and maybe that would look like uh, which translation of the Bible you prefer, how you believe the world is going to end, um, any, any number of things like that. These are kind of more open-handed uh, beliefs that we're willing to have some space with, right? And then Christians have what we sometimes call like orthodox beliefs. These are more like close-handed beliefs that aren't quite as up for debate or negotiable. And uh, within orthodoxy, there are some beliefs that, uh, I, David mentioned this last week, that we're part of a church that uh, is part of the, this long tradition of, of protecting the rights of the individual um, because we believe they're created in God's image. And so from a very early day, long before other denominations were, we were part of a, we are part of a tradition that considered non-negotiable some of the following things. You know, the first thing would be that regardless of race or ethnicity, that all humans are created equal. All humans are created in the image of God. The second would be that from like that first millisecond of conception until death from womb to tomb, we firmly believe that all life is sacred and must be protected. The third would be that we believe God's plan for human sexuality is between one man and one woman within the confines of marriage. And then the last one would relate to gender equality, and it's that we believe men and women, though distinctively different, are entirely equal. And that extends to leadership, that extends to women in leadership, women in leadership over men, that women are entirely equal. Now, I have a joke with some of my friends often that I was raised by women. Um, I grew up with my stepdad, but he was a quiet guy, and my mom and my three older sisters. And so this is an issue that's often very just near and dear to my heart, the empowering of women. I also have a six-year-old daughter, and I've accepted the fact that my six-year-old daughter may not be able to do everything in life, okay? She may not be a world-class volleyball player. She may not be a physicist. Um, but it will be because she doesn't have the skills or the talents to do those things, right? It won't be because she's specifically female. And that's what this series is about. It's about recognizing that God is speaking through the voices of women as much and as powerfully as he is the voices of men. And sometimes we need to tune our ears to hear those voices. So today I have the pleasure of talking to you about the story of Esther. And maybe you're familiar with this story, maybe you're not. I can tell you from the top there are essentially two main characters in the story of Esther. The first is Esther for whom the book is named. And the second is God who actually isn't named at all in the book. It's the only book of the Bible that doesn't contain at least one single reference to God. So let me tell you the story and I'm going to have to move through the early details of this pretty quickly because I want to get to the implications of it. Uh, I want to talk more about that. But 
let, let's hit the details, the context uh, historically of this if we can. So here we go first. Esther chapter one, verse one. This is what happened during the time of Xerxes. The Xerxes who ruled over 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. So Xerxes is the king of Persia, which is in modern day Iran. When Nehemiah and the Israelites were sent back from Israel to rebuild their temple by Cyrus the Great, when they came back from exile, Cyrus dies, he's replaced by Darius. We've got some news, good King Darius. That guy, you know, from Veggie Tales, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Darius, and then Darius' son is Xerxes, okay? Uh, that's where we're at in the story. Go to the next, Esther 2, verses 7. So, Mordecai had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who was also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother had died. So when Nehemiah and some of the Israelites go back to rebuild the temple, some Jews stayed in Persia. This would have been Esther's family and Mordecai's family. And here we're introduced to a couple characters right off the start. Esther is an orphan. Her parents have died. And Mordecai, the Hebrew's a little bit fuzzy, but he's some sort of like extended relative. And he has taken on like parental rights for Esther. It is his responsibility to look out for her. And then it's at least worth noting here that the only sort of recognizable qualities that are attributed to Esther here are that she is uh, how does it say it? She's young, she has a lovely figure, and she's beautiful, which is sort of typical about how women have been seen and valued, unfortunately, in history. Now, in this story, it's a bit timely because Xerxes is about to hold a beauty competition, his own little bachelorette, or bachel which one is it where the guy has the girls? I have no idea. Anyway, he's about to have a dating competition, okay? He wants to find the youngest, most beautiful woman in all of the land. All right. Uh, moving on. Esther chapter 2, starting with verse 10. Esther had not revealed her nationality and family background because Mordecai had forbidden her to do so. Every day he walked back and forth near the courtyard of the harem to find out how Esther was and what was happening to her. So Esther is Jewish. And there is good reason to believe that if people found out, at least from these verses, if people found out about her Jewishness, it would be a problem. So Mordecai says, you need to keep this quiet. Esther, against her will, uh, is pulled into this beauty competition. She becomes part of the king's harem. And Mordecai does the best that he can to keep an eye on her. He goes, he watches after her, uh, tries to keep an eye on her, uh, and, and help her keep the secret. And then Esther 2.17, this is how the... Uh, Competition wraps up. Now the king was attracted to Esther more than to any of the other women, and she won his favor and approval more than any of the other virgins. So he set a royal crown on her head and made her queen instead of Vashti. Vashti was the queen in Esther chapter one who gets uh, dismissed, I guess you could say. So everything's going pretty well. And then one day, Mordecai hears about a plot to assassinate Xerxes. He overhears some, some, some women talking about it. He tells Esther, and then Esther tells Xerxes, and the plot is thwarted. And this comes out really well for both Esther and Mordecai. She shows that she's someone who can be trusted. Mordecai shows that he's valuable, that he has an ear to the ground, and here's what's happening, at least in this scenario. So, things are going well. 
but we're about to see a shift in the plot, and we're going to see Esther's sort of elite political skills come to light a little bit. So in chapter 3, the plot of this story shifts, and we meet a new character named Haman. Haman hasn't shown up yet. Haman is the second most powerful man in all of Xerxes' kingdom, and he's so powerful that Xerxes has ordered whenever anybody passes him by, they must fall to their knees and bow down. But one day, he passes by Mordecai, and it seems that Mordecai is from the family of Cush, who was, uh, uh, that's the family of King Saul, and Haman is an Agagite, and the Agagites are the ones who are responsible for killing King Saul, right, in late 1 Samuel, early 2 Samuel. So anyway, there's like this family beef between these two guys, right? So Mordecai sees Haman walking by, and he refuses to bow down. And this drives Haman crazy. How's everyone doing with all these names? And you okay? You staying okay with the story? Does this make sense so far? All right, so Haman is furious that Mordecai won't bow. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So Haman convinces Xerxes that there are some people who worship differently. It's actually identical to the scene, nearly identical to the scene that plays out with Xerxes' father, Darius. Remember, some some of his teachers come to him and say there are some people who aren't following the laws. The same scene plays out with Haman and Xerxes. There are some people who aren't following your laws. And Haman talks Xerxes into killing every one of them. So the only thing left to be decided is the date. In fact, uh, Xerxes issues a royal decree. It goes across the kingdom. All of the Jews find out that all of them are about to die. They just have to find out when. And we're told that Haman casts a lot. Are you familiar with that in the biblical language? It's, it's kind of like rolling a, a dice. He casts a lot. It's the word uh, per. Uh, plural would be like if you cast lots, it's perim. And this date is still remembered in Judaism. In the spring, I think it was May, March, 22nd this year, as the Feast of Purim, when the Jewish people remember that they were, they were scheduled for extermination, right? So Haman rolls a dice, he decides on a date, and everybody is set to die. Esther chapter 4, verse 4. When Esther's eunuchs and fem- females came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress. So when the news spreads, Mordecai goes to the palace gate and he's in sackcloth and grieving and mourning. And Esther is suddenly made aware. You got to imagine like outside of the fact that she's married to someone she probably doesn't love, uh, she's living a pretty decent life at, at, at the moment, right? She's like, her life isn't on the line. She's living in the palace. She's wearing the crown of the queen. Things had been going mostly okay for her. And suddenly she's made aware that every one of her people, including Mordecai, are scheduled to die. This is the second most important moment in the book because Esther is made aware of the problem. Awareness is... Awareness can come with like a very expensive price tag, especially when God is involved. When you become aware of something, when you gain knowledge of something, it can get very demanding. Uh, Let me show you what I mean. We sometimes say something like this. We say ignorance is bliss. How many of you nod your head if you've heard that 
before. Ignorance is bliss, right? What do we mean when we say something like ignorance is bliss? That like, it's sort of fun to struggle when you watch Jeopardy or like being the least intelligent person in the room is life-giving. Is that what it means that ignorance is bliss? Well, not exactly, right? Ignorance is bliss, not because stupidity is fun, but because awareness is costly. Ignorance is bliss because of the consequences that come with knowledge. You've heard the expression, knowledge is power. What does that mean? It means that when we know things, we're now responsible for them. When Esther finds out that her people are scheduled to be murdered, she's now in some way responsible for that. Awareness, awakening, enlightenment, knowledge, these things are costly. Let me give you a, a, a nicer, friendlier example. Have you ever had the experience where you feel like you're the only one who knows how to use a self-checkout line? Like at a store? Like other people, they, no matter what, they can't figure out how to scan their bananas. They can't figure out where the money goes. And you're watching as like all four of them have those yellow lights flashing. And when it's me, in my mind, I'm like, I'm going to show these people how to use a self-checkout, right? Give me 30 seconds. I'm going to have everything scanned and paid for and out the door. And then I'm going to kind of look back like, yeah, yeah. Isn't it frustrating when you're surrounded by people who don't have the same like level of, like say, proficiency as you do? It's not always very fun. And it's not always as simple as like self-checkout lines. The more you become aware that you are surrounded by people, uh, uh, let me say it like this, the more you become aware of what is happening around you, the more you become aware that others are not aware of what is happening around them, right? Can I say that again? The more you become aware of what is happening in the world around you, the more you recognize that you're surrounded by people who have no idea what's going on around them. And they're kind of living in a state of bliss, right? Like oblivious is sort of oddly rewarding. But the more aware you become, the more aware you are that others aren't aware. And I'm not just trying to be silly with words right now. The more emotionally healthy you become, Let's say like you stop like that dysfunctional habit of blaming others for your problems. The more you practice that, the more others are going to blame you for their problems. The more like relationally healthy you become. We're saying like you don't attack people for their beliefs or you don't criticize people who disagree with you or you don't tear other people down to build yourself up. The more you refuse to participate in that type of behavior, the more that you will be attacked from people who love the drama. It's like this odd sort of trade-off in life that like the more aware you become in the world, the more of an outsider you become in the world. You become more aware of how frustrating everything is right? How everyone else isn't on the same page. And the more Christ-like you become, the more like, as Romans 12 says, your mind is renewed, right? Transformed, renewed into the mind of Christ. The more that you look at the world around you and you realize it's nothing like God intends for it to be. And you live with that sort of tension, right? Between the two. More and more, you fit less and less in the world that you're living in. Remember, Jesus even told his disciples in Matthew 5, he starts out like this Sermon on the Mount. 
Blessed are the meek, blessed are the poor, blessed are the peacemakers, all of these blessed things. And then he says, and blessed are you when people persecute you and mock you and lie about you and insult you all because of me. It's going to happen. The more that you become like Jesus, you are incompatible with the world around you. You just don't fit anymore. And Jesus says they're going to look for a reason to get rid of you. They're going to try to move you on from this world to the next. That's what's happening in Esther's story as well. Haman wants to get rid of all of them. We are living in, maybe you've had moments in your own life where you felt like living like Jesus makes you less popular in the world around you. And that's not always a good feeling. It increases our suffering sometimes as Christians when we, when we stand firmly for some of the things that we are convinced that the Bible says, the world around us doesn't always know how to understand that. And it's easy to want us to like just kind of move us out of the way. Sometimes we just don't fit in this world anymore. Esther chapter four, verse 10. Mordecai told her she needed to intercede for her people. She needed to, now that she's aware that their extermination date has been set, she has to do something about it. And here is Esther's response. Then she instructed him, her messenger, to say to Mordecai, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. So Esther says, I get that things are bad, but there's nothing that I can do about it. Like, what do you want me to do about it, right? She responds in a way that I think I would respond, which is like, yeah, this is terrible, but I don't understand what I'm supposed to do about it. And then she quotes this law, right? Like, and everyone knows that if I, got, if I go into the king's chambers, I am as good as dead. She's being pushed out of the world that she's living in. And she's dreaming, maybe longing for a world that doesn't exist or no longer exists or doesn't yet exist. So let's have a conversation about heaven. When we think about heaven, the world that we're longing for, I would suggest that there is a future dimension to the kingdom of heaven. There's a future kingdom and there is a present kingdom. That there is a future kingdom when we believe that God will set all things right, when there will be no more pain and loneliness and suffering and heartache and violence. We believe there is a future kingdom someday, someplace else, otherworldly. And then there is a present reality to the kingdom of God where like sometimes God's will, the things that are supposed to happen, kind of break their way into this world. And sometimes we see the goodness. And sometimes, like every time an addict is delivered or a woman is rescued from abuse or, uh, or a hungry belly is filled, we have these moments, these glimpses, foretastes of what it will look like when everything that's happening up there happens down here. Sometimes we get glimpses of that. Future kingdom, present kingdom. Not all the time, but we get these glimpses. And what we have to do is we have to live in this tension between like the future absolute sense of the kingdom of heaven someday and the present relative sense of the kingdom of heaven now. In an absolute total sense, 
We believe that heaven is this future reality where everything happens as God intends for it to happen and there is no more suffering and there are no more tears and there is no more pain. That's what we believe about the future kingdom of heaven. But we are living in something that is called the present kingdom of heaven that is also like at times a deeply broken world. In a relative sense, we can see our reality and we know that it's not perfect. We know that we are surrounded by suffering. It's the wrong kind of world here sometimes. I heard a story just this last week about a four-year-old who shot their one-year-old brother in the head in Western South Dakota. Whatever I think about the future realities of the kingdom of God are put on hold when I hear a story like that and I think, how is that possible? We're living in this tension between what is to come and what is at hand. And the more awakened you become, the more aware you become to the suffering that is happening, the less you can deny it, right? Like Esther, you can no longer pretend and bury your head in the sand and just assume that it's not happening. So the next option maybe is to try to say, well, there's nothing I can do about it. But that's not gonna be a valid option in this story either. The more we hope for the heaven that is to come, the more we hurt for the world that we see today. The more that you sympathize and empathize and come alongside people in their pain, the more you are going to take on some of that pain. And and, in some ways, that's kind of the idea for the people of God. But how are we going to carry that? How are we going to handle that? The more that we hope for the future of the kingdom of heaven, the more we feel the the pain of our present. You take on like the heart of God and you start to feel the things that God feels and your heart breaks for the things that God's heart breaks for and you're kind of carrying these things. And we become more sensitive, we should, and we should feel more responsible for what's happening in the present reality of the kingdom in all of this brokenness. But how do we balance these two? Uh, This may seem a little obvious or even trite, and I don't mean it to, but I've heard it said like this, that when we think about the present kingdom and the suffering that happens in the world, it hurts us more. The more aware you become of what's happening, it hurts deeper. But then we hold that against like our hope for the future kingdom of God And so this feels almost a little insensitive to say, it hurts you more, but it bothers you less. Because in a way, we know that God is still in control and that God is working out all things for the good of those who love him. And we're kind of balancing these two things. In the relative sense, it hurts more, but in the absolute sense, in the future kingdom, it bothers us less because God is still on his throne. And the only way that we can make sense of it, the only way that we can move into the pain and the agony that surrounds us is to hold the tension of the present, sorry, present and future together. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were, and sometimes you didn't want to know the end because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad had happened? But in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. 
Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. We're holding intention. The idea that things are not as they should be in one sense, right? They're not as they should be, and I know it, but one day they will be, and I have to trust that. And so every reminder of evil in our world inspires us with hope that the world to come, and uh, the world that's sort of coming in part and in fullness right now, will be restored when the injustices of the world will be made right. There is suffering in this world, but we are called to step into action to respond to it. And that's what happens in Esther's story. Look at this. So remember, she said to Mordecai, I don't know what I'm supposed to do about it. And uh, here's what he says back. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place, but you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. There is suffering that surrounds us. There is, there is pain surrounding Esther. But God's will goes on. And Esther must choose she cannot remain silent in the face of injustice. She cannot stand by as evil sweeps the land. And neither can I, and neither can you. At some point, we've got to figure out, like, we've got to make a decision. We've got to get off the fence. I should write a book or start a podcast or something. <laughs> at, but at some point, we've got to get engaged. We've got to do something about the suffering that we see in the world. If you remain silent, it does not mean that God's will will come to an end. It won't. God will find a way from another place to protect his people. But for Esther and her family, the warning is, but you may not. She must move into action to save her people and to save herself, but she must do it cleverly. She must do it carefully. She must do it almost like out of sight, right? Which is sort of the point of the book not mentioning the name of God is that like the subtle response of the people of God when they're surrounded by an empire that doesn't want them there. You can't run out into the middle of the streets waving your God flag. You have to find more subtle ways to speak to the evil that surrounds you. We all must find a way to do that. We all have days when we look around us and we say, man, it feels like the world is just getting a little bit out of hand. Like it's just getting a little bit crazy. What happened to the world that I knew? What happened to the way things used to be? And maybe some of that is just nostalgia, but some of it is, I think we're living in a very unique time where change is happening very, very rapidly. This kind of divisiveness isn't what we've seen in the past. It is different. And for many of us, we're kind of like, we're going through those responses, right, of I don't know what's happening, my head's in the sand, ignorance is bliss, to what do you want me to do about it? But we have to make a choice and decide to get in, and then we got to figure out how do we do it cleverly? How do we do it cautiously? We have to be able to respond with wisdom, and we have to be able to trust God in the process. And I want to suggest that Esther, she's able to act in the midst of her agony specifically because she knows that this life is not the only life that there is. She has that belief in the future kingdom, the future reality of the kingdom. 
If all we do is kind of sit in our agony, it's paralyzing. We won't act. But if we never are aware of the suffering that's around us, we won't know of a reason to act, right? So sometimes uh, it's like uh, if we agonize, we won't act. But if we act, it'll temper our agony. We can feel like we're actually like, contributing to what's happening, uh, to the solution of what's happening around us. So look at how Esther responds. It's one of the most incredible things. Remember, Mordecai just said, you will not be spared, but God will find a way to deliver. And then in 15 and 16, then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai, go, gather all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three nights, three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. And when this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And I know it can be hard to feel like the heaviness of Esther's last sentence there. But like, this is a gangster move. <laughs> Esther says, okay, not only am I going to get involved, I'm going to walk right down the path that I am positive leads to certain death. And if I die, I die. She's able to do this because she knows there is a future kingdom and a present kingdom. And she's putting all of her hope in the world that is to come and the God that she can trust. But she's putting her skin on the line. You know, the day before the Feast of Purim, Jewish people celebrate the fast of Esther. Much lesser known holiday. When the people were delivered by Esther's like obedience to God. She fasted, she asked Mordecai to fast, and God delivered. Esther shows us how to be courageous when the situation around us is rapidly deteriorating, right? She doesn't deny the suffering, she acknowledges it, she comes up with a plan, and she acts bravely. The best thing about the Esther story is it turns out pretty well, right? After this, like, it's kind of cool. Uh, Haman gets exposed for being like the psychopath that he is. Mordecai is vindicated and uh, like the Jews are delivered. And as far as we know, like everybody lives happily ever after. But this isn't usually the story of the people of God. And if you've read much of the Bible or you know much of church history for the last couple thousand years, you may know that as well. That it often doesn't end quite like this nicely and neatly. That into the life of Jesus, when he's telling his disciples, people are going to curse you and insult you and want to take your lives, he's not being metaphorical. He's not trying to inspire them the way that I'm trying to inspire you. He's telling them about days that are to come, in fact. And in those days, the days of the early church, they were called to act courageously and didn't get quite like the fairy tale ending that Esther does. If it's possible that you and I are living in chaotic times, if it's possible that we're living in uncertain times as well, and if it's possible that we feel more and more incompatible with the world around us, that the world um, maybe just isn't as excited about the way of Jesus as we are, then a day very well may come when we're going to have to decide, like, what does it mean to publicly declare that I follow Jesus? What does it mean to, like, step into the suffering of the world? And we're going to have to be able to balance those two things, right? 
Hurts more, bothers us less. Hurts more, bothers us less. We're gonna have to be able to act in the midst of a hard, difficult time. And the way that we do that is by putting our trust in the kingdom that is to come, but accepting the responsibility that we have to work and to live and to operate in the kingdom that is now. We are the hands and feet of Jesus. We are the ones that he is going to use to alleviate the suffering that we witness that breaks our hearts. Anyway, for the New Testament church, the, the, the endings aren't always happy. And the writer of Hebrews captures this pretty well in Hebrews chapter 10. Remember those earlier days, he says, after you've received the light, when you endured a great conflict full of suffering, and sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution, and other times you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You suffered along with those in prison and joyfully accepted the confiscation of your property because you knew that you yourselves had better and lasting possessions. So the writer says, remember those days gone by. Remember what it's been like to be persecuted, to be the one on the outside, the one thrown in prison, the one who doesn't fit in with the world around you. You know that there is a better lasting possession than like the possessions that they took from you. Something like that, right? And then he tells the story of an Old Testament. I'll close with this. He tells the story of an Old Testament prophet uh, who was warning everybody he could warn. Like, listen, we're living in some really destructive ways. And if we don't fix this, everything's going to be over. And he's warning and he's warning and he's warning. Listen, the enemy's going to come and they're going to destroy us. Well, no one listens to him. And sure enough, the Babylonians come and they wipe Israel out. The Old Testament uh, prophet's name is Habakkuk. And he begins to change his message from one of like doom and gloom, right? The sky is falling, the sky is falling. He realizes that that message isn't being heard anyway. And instead he takes on a new word, uh, a word of hope. And he begins to tell people like, they need to find a way to stay faithful even in the midst of dark times. Don't give up even in the midst of dark times. This becomes Habakkuk's message. Things are not what they seem. Don't judge things by the way that they look out there. In fact, in Habakkuk 2, he says, look at the proud. Their spirit is not right in them, but the righteous live by faith. Look at the world around you. Look at the way that they're living, the powers, the prideful. That's not the way that God has intended you to live but the righteous live by faith. Faith in the world that is to come. Faith in the sovereignty of the God that is here now. We can put our trust in God so that whatever may happen around us, we can endure it because we know God is faithful. The righteous live by faith. The German philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche said, uh, he who has a why can endure almost anyhow. And what's interesting about Nietzsche is he never found his why. He was an atheist until he died. But we have that why. We know what God has called us to and we know God's power. So the writer of Hebrews 10 ends it this way. In verse 39, he says, we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but we are those who have faith and are saved. The righteous live by faith. This is the story of Esther. And it's the story of every one of us. It's the story of everybody that's about to get baptized in a few minutes. Baptism is a public declaration of your faith in Jesus. And I have to tell you, kids and adults alike, here, we're going to cheer and celebrate and be so excited for you that you're making this decision because it's so incredible that you're being public with your faith. But a day may come 
when you find yourself in a room that isn't as eager to celebrate as we are today. And so your statement here today, it's more than just, I want to take a dip in a nice warm bath over here. And it is very warm, just so you guys know. It's, it's a dream. It's wonderful. But the statement you're making here today is, wherever God calls you, whatever he asks you to do, you are going to step into the service of the king. The righteous live by faith. Let's pray. God, thank you for this morning and thank you for the incredible opportunity to celebrate baptism. Thank you for these young men and women over here who are excited about getting baptized, Lord. And we, we are just, we're all so grateful for what it's been like to have you move in our lives, God, to make us new. And Lord, we pray that, uh, we pray that for everyone in the room, Lord, you would help us uh, carry that tension well, Lord, of looking forward to your kingdom, but recognizing our responsibility in the world today in the midst of suffering, Lord. And may we be people who bravely and courageously step into difficult situations to bring the gospel, to bring healing and hope and love and forgiveness to anybody who will listen. Lord, we love you and we praise you in your name. Amen.